Good evening. So tonight we'll be looking at this, this story from Acts 5. So it'll be worthwhile following along in your Bibles. Um, if you don't have one tonight, you can um, grab one from the shelves in the foyer. Uh, let me pray before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you are, thank you for your good news about Jesus. Help me to speak words of truth about this good news tonight. And Father, your Holy Spirit is a witness of this good news, so we ask that he would convict us of the truth of your gospel tonight, that we might respond and receive forgiveness of sins and live in a way that is obedient to you and that honours the Lord Jesus. Amen. O-Week. O-Week at uni is in full swing. It's Clubs and Societies Day. All the different clubs are jostling for a table to set up their posters and pamphlets. There's a buzz in the air. So many uni students. Old friends, new contacts, free giveaways. The Fellowship of Overseas Christian University Students, or FOCUS for short, have got their table. They're talking to international students. Our aim? Talk to as many international students as possible about Jesus. Our slogan captures the two great needs of international students. Meet Jesus, make friends. Just then, two, two Anglo guys idle by. Spotting the slogan on the poster, they slow down. They start to loiter. Clearly they're not international students. Who knows, maybe, maybe they're Christian. Maybe they're interested in finding out about Jesus. So cautiously, I approach. I introduce myself. We talk a bit and I explain about focus. And I ask them if they're interested in finding, more about, finding out more about Jesus. My fears are realised. I met with this sort of smug, muted hostility. Clearly they've seen the poster and have stopped to have a dig. All very civil, of course. A few snide comments mingled with the super sceptical question, matched with the eye roll and that all patronising smile and nod with the eyebrows raised. I do my best to answer some of their questions and objections and then the conversation ends. I head for the safety of the table. Alex is a Christian, uh, uh, sorry, Alex is a Chinese student. He's been coming to Focus for about 12 months. He, he's made some friends. He enjoys hanging out on the Friday night meetings and as well as eating the, the free dinner provided. He, attended, he attends the Bible study, which is um, for uh, those exploring Christianity. He's not that interested, though, more content with catching up with friends. He's happy with focus, not hostile um, with anything we say or do, but just not that keen on Jesus. Judy, she arrived at focus in her first year already a Christian. She was a shy, shy student, so made friends with the, the fringy, shy people. 
as she attended Bible studies and talks and church. She begins to grow in her faith in Jesus and what he's done on the cross. Judy's convinced of the gospel and, and she's convicted that it's God's will that she share it with others. So in her quiet and quirky way, she begins to pray and share the gospel with her friend Mary. But not just with Mary, but with many of her friends. And after much prayer and many conversations, Mary decides to trust in Jesus. She repented and was forgiven by God. Judy's thrilled. Of course, I've changed names here, but here are three stories of people I've known. Three different responses to God and his gospel. Tonight we'll be looking at, at this story from Acts 5. We'll see that the gospel is from God. And we'll see in the story three different responses to God and his gospel. And I'll be asking you which response you resonate with. At the start of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 8, we see that see God, through Jesus, commissions the apostles with the task of being witnesses of the gospel. And he promises them the Holy Spirit to empower them for the task. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God gives his apostles the task of sharing the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In our story, we'll see that the apostles continue to obey God in this way. And as we've, as we've seen before in Acts, the gospel which they proclaim is not just fun facts about Jesus, but it's for the purpose of bringing people to repentance for the forgiveness of their sin. Acts 5, 12-42 is a great story. There's action, tense courtroom scenes, even a bit of history. The only thing it's missing is romance. In the lead-up to this story, we've seen the perfect storm brewing. Remember back in chapter 4? The apostles get busted by the religious leaders for, for healing in the name of Jesus. In 4.18... They get ordered by the Sanhedrin not to preach in the name of Jesus. In 4.29-30, they respond by calling a prayer meeting, asking God for boldness to speak God's words and for them to perform miracle in Je miracles in Jesus' name. In the summary section of our passage in, 12, in verses 12-16, to 16, God answers their prayers even though it's in total defiance of the religious leaders. Verse 12, the apostles are performing miracles. Uh, and in verse 14, more and more people um, are believing in the Lord. This is uh, presum presumably um, because of the boldness of the apostles and the other believers in preaching the gospel. Uh, we can see this in, in chapter 4, verses 31 and 33. Uh, in verse 15 the, of our passage, um, the popularity of the apostles is growing. Lots of people are attracted to them uh, for healing and exorcisms. What's going to happen? How long can the apostles keep blatantly defying the religious leaders 
threatening their honour and authority. How long will the religious leaders put up with this? As it turns out, not long. Verse 17, the high priests and the religious leaders, green with envy, want to shut the apostles up, make them disappear. So they arrest them, trying to gain back a few honour points by putting them, they, they put them, they make the, a public statement by putting them in the public jail. Well, it was all good while it lasted. They had a good run, but really, you couldn't expect them to get away with it too much longer, could you? But, verse 19. Apostles don't even make it through their first night in jail. The angel of the Lord releases the apostles in the middle of the night. He opens up the doors and brings them out. Go, stand in the temple courts and tell the people about this new life. The Lord, by his... By his angel is reversing the attempt to silence the apostles. The religious leaders, they want to silence them, but the Lord wants them to speak. I'm not sure about you, but if I was just broken out of prison, I wouldn't be thinking about going back to the scene of the crime to continue what I started. No, I'd be thinking about how much space I could put between me and the religious leaders as possible. Going back to the temple? Surely that is a great way of getting yourself killed. But they obey the Lord. Verse 21. As soon as the sun starts to rise, they're back in the temple teaching. Have you ever seen the Looney Tunes cartoon Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner? Coyote's always trying to catch and eat the Roadrunner. Inevitably, his plan fails. He ends up falling off a cliff or getting hit with his own rocket. This next section is just like that, from halfway through verse 21. Picture the scene. The high priest has just called the Sanhedrin together, a meeting of all the bigwigs of Israel. Everyone's arrived. The high priest and his mates are gearing up for an apostle takedown session. The officers have been sent to fetch the apostles. They arrive at the jail, but it's empty. We, we, found, we found the jail securely locked. Guards standing at the door. We opened it up, but, but there, was, there was no one inside. Awkward. Talk about a plan backfiring. The high priests and, the t and the, his associates have tried to shame and silence the apostles. They've been totally rolled shamed in the presence of the entire assembly of the elders of Israel. To make matters worse, verse 25, the apostles aren't just out of jail. That wasn't bad enough. They're back in the temple courts preaching to the people, the exact opposite of what the religious leaders had planned. And their officers, they can't even go in hard when they go and get the apostles because they're afraid of the people that they're going to pick up stones to defend them. Man, talk about having a bad day. So the story now moves from action in the temple to action in the courtroom. Verse 27. The apostles appear before the Sanhedrin. The exacerbated high priest starts to question them. We gave you strict orders 
not to teach in, in this name. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. We must obey God rather than human beings, Peter replies. Peter's point's clear. And it's his main point of his speech. He repeats the idea twice. The start of verse 29 and at the end in verse 32. They must obey God first and foremost rather than human beings. And his reason? The gospel. He outlines it in uh, verses 30 and 31. The gospel according to Peter is what has happened to Jesus, Jesus' identity and what Jesus is doing. So what's happened to Jesus? Well, Jesus has been killed. God raised him from the dead. God exalted him to his right hand. Jesus' identity? Well, Jesus is prince, a.k.a. ruler, lord, boss. And what's Jesus doing? He's bringing Israel to repentance and forgiving their sins. So the focus here is on Israel because that's where they are. They're in Jerusalem, the capital. It, it, however, it's been anticipated in Acts uh, 1.8 that Jesus' activity is not just limited to Israel, but actually includes people everywhere, even to the ends of the earth. Because they're convicted of the gospel, they obey God in being witnesses of the gospel. And in verse 32, they make this clear. We are witnesses, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The implications? If God's given them the task and has empowered them by his spirit, then the religious leaders who are opposed to the proclamation of the gospel mustn't be, mustn't be from God. They mustn't have, their, have his spirit. They must be against God. This does nothing to settle the Sanhedrin down. If they were hacked off before, they are furious now, to the point of wanting to kill them. So in verse 34, just before things get out of control, Gamaliel stands up, orders the men out of the room, and cautions the angry mob. Gamaliel then gives the Sanhedrin a history lesson in past Messiah figures. First, there was Theodos. He was killed. His followers dispersed. Result? Nothing. Then there was Judas the Galilean. Again, killed. Again, followers scattered. Two people claiming to be something ended up being nobodies. I would advise you, men of Sanhedrin, to do nothing. Let the men go. Look, if, if their purpose is not from God, then they'll fail like the rest. But if, if it is from God, they're unstoppable. You'll just find yourself fighting against God. Sanhedrin buy it. With a parting dig at the apostles, they have them flogged and released with a reminder not to speak in the name of Jesus. 
For the apostles leave the Sanhedrin battered and bruised, a disgrace. But they leave rejoicing. They've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for Jesus' name. From a human perspective, this is what you call an oxymoron. They're rejoicing because they have been honoured by being dishonoured. The beating was meant to bring suffering and shame. But in doing so, the religious leaders were clearly associating the apostles with the Prince Jesus, treating them the same way as Jesus had been treated. What an honour to be so closely associated with Prince Jesus. So they were left so they left joyfully. And so they continued to do what they've been doing from the beginning, preaching the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Disobeying the religious leaders, but obeying God. Best efforts of the religious leaders to silence the preaching of God's gospel failed. God and his gospel have clearly come out on top. So now we've gone through the story. I hope that you see that God, that God's the hero of the story, that the gospel which the apostles preach is not actually their gospel, but it's the good news from God. It's God's gospel. So how are you going to respond to God and his gospel? In the story, there are three responses. The first, hostility, the response of the high priest and the Sanhedrin. They fought against God by fighting God's people. Second response, it's what I like to call the fence-sitter response, the response of Gamaliel, who sits on the fence. He doesn't actively fight, rather he sits back and watches, see what will happen. And then the third response, the response of obedience. The apostles, in the face of persecution, obey God and join him in his mission to the world. Which of these responses resonate with you? Are you like the, the high priests and the Sanhedrin? Are you hostile towards God and his message about Jesus? If you are, I'd encourage you to listen to Gamil's advice. If the gospel about Jesus was made up, then it's bound to fail. But if it's from God, you'll find yourself fighting against God. Look at the story. From beginning to end, God makes sure that his gospel about Jesus is made known. His agenda is not frustrated by anything that the religious leaders do. Verse 14 at the start. Before they were arrested, more and more men and women believed in the Lord, the gospel having effect. Verse 19 to 21, once they were arrested, the Lord sent his angel to get them out, to get them back out preaching. Even during the trial, the gospel was explained, verses 29 and 31. At the end, the, uh, the apostles, beaten, bruised, commanded not to preach. They continue on teaching the gospel. You keep reading Acts and you see that God's people continue to suffer. But God continues to make sure that his gospel about Jesus is made known. And in fact, the very last sentence of the book, chapter, 8, 20, uh, chapter 28, verses 30-31, finishes with Paul under house arrest, proclaiming the kingdom of God 
teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with full boldness and without hindrance. The book of Acts finishes with the gospel being taught without hindrance. Clearly, the gospel is from God. It's not made up by people and it won't fail. So, if you find yourself in this hostile group, I don't know why you're hostile. Maybe, maybe you're hostile because of past treatment from Christians, people acting in the name of God. I'm sorry, I don't know what's happened. And you've probably got good reason to be angry. If that's you, thanks for coming. I hope tonight has been a good experience for you. And please, if whatever happened needs reporting to the authorities, please do so. But if this is you, can I encourage you not to blame Prince Jesus for something that people did bearing his name? The Gospel is described in verse 20 as new life. Jesus gave his life on the cross so that you could have new life. Don't remain hostile at God for what people have done. Gamaliel's advice says stop. Stop being hostile to God. But Gamaliel's advice also leaves us with questions. Is the gospel about Jesus really from God? Did God really raise Jesus from the dead? Does God really offer forgiveness through Jesus? Don't just stop being hostile. Find out whether or not God's really behind all this. Maybe you're not hostile. Maybe you're someone who resonates with the advice of Gamaliel. You're comfortable sitting on the fence for the moment, just watching, just seeing what will happen. If this is you, have a think about Gamaliel's advice. Is it as wise as it sounds? Sure, it was good diplomatic advice. Stop the apostles getting killed. But is sitting on the fence really where you want to stay? Three reasons why you don't want to be a fence sitter. First, fence sitting doesn't change the gospel. The reality of the gospel doesn't change regardless of where you're sitting. It doesn't change what happened to Jesus, his death, resurrection and exaltation. It doesn't change who Jesus is as Prince and Saviour. And it doesn't change what Jesus is doing, bringing about repentance and forgiveness of sins. Sitting on the fence doesn't change the gospel. Second, fence sitting doesn't change your relationship with God. Fence sitters like Gamaliel are just as guilty as the religious leaders. Jesus is the prince, so everyone needs to submit to him. Sitting on the fence can be described as a passive rebellion. Sure, you're not actively hostile, but by sitting on the fence, not making the move to submit to Jesus as prince, is in itself a rejection and rebellion. So sitting on the fence doesn't change your guilt before God. Third, sitting on the fence means you miss out. 
And if there's anything you should have FOMO about, this is it. You're missing out on the forgiveness of sins that Jesus gives. You're missing out on the freedom that comes with this forgiveness. Look at the apostles. They were free from the guilt, shame and fear. They were fearless in the face of threats and persecution. Why? They had God on their side, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, so they had nothing to fear, not even death. They were shameless, despite being publicly ridiculed, imprisoned, beaten. All this was actually an honour. Hence their joy when they left the Sanhedrin. They knew that being shamed publicly like their saviour would actually end in glory like their saviour. Guiltless, they'd been forgiven by Prince Jesus, no longer facing condemnation from God, no longer worrying, thinking, am I good enough? Will God accept me? You don't want to risk missing out by sitting on the fence. Get off the fence. Come, experience this new life. Stop waiting to see what happens. You already know. Perhaps your, perhaps neither of these two responses um, connect with you. Uh, perhaps you already know and trust what God says in his gospel. But perhaps you're a little bit like me. You read this, thing, this story and you think, man, I am such a wuss. When, when I finished uni, I got a job uh, working as a bush management company. I found that this job was a great place for opportunities to share the gospel. There was generally a fair bit of time throughout the day to talk and banter. There was the travel time to and from the depot. There was the lunch and smoko breaks. There was some of these tasks uh, that we were given were actually made a lot easier by talking. Um, and as I got to know people, uh, occasionally there'd be the odd question asked about faith and similar topics. So here I am. I've got ample time and freedom to talk about Jesus. So what did I do? Well, I'd love to say that the last verse, that the last verse of this passage described me. Day after day in the office and from job site to job site, Matt never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. But I can't. Which, lead, which led to many missed opportunities for gospel conversations. And my guess is that I'm not the only one who feels like this. How do we overcome the fear of talking to people about Jesus? How do we obey God rather than being scared into silence? In this story, Peter helps us. In verse 29... In verse 29, Peter's one of the apostles who have been arrested by, who's been arrested and boldly answers the high priest. But looking at Peter's history, we see that he hasn't always been the fearless preacher. Something's happened to Peter. Something's transformed him from the wussy Peter we see in Mark 14, who denies Jesus three times, to the to the bold Peter putting his life on the line by preaching Jesus. What's happened? 
Well, the death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus, that's what's happened. These events have changed Peter from the wuss to the fearless preacher. And these events should change us too. Peter's convinced of the origin of the gospel, that it's from God. And Peter's convicted of the truth of the gospel. Because Peter's convinced that the gospel comes from God, he shares it. It's clear in the story that the gospel's from God. Verse 9, verse 19, God sends an angel. He wants the gospel taught, so he get, sends the angel to get them back out teaching. In releasing the apostles, God shames the religious leaders who are trying to silence the gospel. In Peter's defence, he says, God's the one who obeyed. God's the one who is to be obeyed. God's the one who raised Jesus. God's the one who exalted Jesus. God's the one who has empowered them with the Holy Spirit. If you're not already convinced, follow Gamaliel's logic. The gospel must be from God. Because at the end of the story, the gospel comes out on top. It doesn't fail like the other fake messiahs. Peter knew that the gospel ticket was a winning ticket because it was backed by God. He also understands that he's being commanded by God to be a witness of the gospel, so he does. So we need to be careful here, not just to apply everything that's said to Peter to ourselves. But the idea of ongoing responsibility of God's people to be witnesses of God's gospel can be seen elsewhere, such as Matthew 28, 18 to 20. So the responsibility of sharing God's gospel is one thing we can apply to ourselves, with the nuance that our witness of the gospel is to be based on their witness. But I don't want you to go away thinking, okay, I need to go share the gospel with my friends because if I because God said so, and if I don't, God's going to growl at me. It's not Peter's motivation. Peter's motivation was much more than a legalistic obedience. It stems from a deep conviction of the gospel itself. This deep conviction is the second thing that transforms Peter, from wuss to fearless preacher. We see this from Peter's reply to the Sanhedrin in verse 29. He obeys God because of what's happened to Jesus in his death and resurrection, who Jesus is as Prince and Saviour, and what, he, and what all this brings, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's witnessed what happened to Jesus. He's experienced the forgiveness from God. That's why he obeys. And again, we see that it's not, that it's not a matter of legalism through their response to the flogging at the end. Verse 41, the apostles leave the Sanhedrin, bloodied and bruised, but full of joy. A legalist might grit their teeth and bear the suffering, but would a legalist rejoice in it? I don't think so. Peter, Peter's understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done through his death and resurrection has transformed him. Fear of people didn't stop him. He knew he was on God's side. Shame didn't stop him. He knew he was associated with, God, with the God-appointed prince of the world. Guilt didn't stop him. 
He'd been forgiven by God. Like Peter, are you convinced that the gospel is from God? Like Peter, are you convicted of the truth of the gospel? What's stopping you from obeying God in this way? Fear of the response you might get? Embarrassment of being known as a Jesus person? Thinking that you're not good enough? I'd encourage you to go back, read one of the Gospels, maybe, maybe Luke's as it's a prequel to Acts. Pray to God, asking him to convict you of the good news of Jesus. Asking him to transform you by his spirit as you read about Jesus and his life, death, resurrection and exaltation. So we've seen that the gospel is from God. Nothing that people throw at it will set it back. It's God's gospel about Jesus, who died, who, raised, who God raised from dead, exalted to his right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel and the rest of the world to repentance and forgiveness of their sins. The story has shown us a few different responses to God's gospel, like my stories at the beginning, there will, be there will continue to be different responses. What's your response going to be?